Hello and welcome to another episode of the Deaf Thing podcast with you, your hosts, Nicola and Sean. In this episode, we're going to do a follow up on the DevOps handbook book that we're doing and basically, you know, reading and going through them through it and giving our, you know, thoughts about it and how kind of like thinking how we could imp- actually apply this to our situation. And today we're going to go through the part three, which is titled the first way or, you know, the technical practices of flow. And so we're basically, you know, of course, we're not going to give you all the things from the book because that would make, you know, zero sense. So I'm going to start off by mentioning a few things that I found valuable. So, you know, Sean, you can jump in and say what you think. So, you know, first thing that was actually interesting in this part is that now they actually, let's say they're still, so this is still like a general overview, kind of like nothing too technical, but they did go into more technical, let's say details in this part. And one thing that was very interesting was that kind of like, one of the requirements is to enable the so-called on-demand creation of dev, test, and production environment. And here also one more thing is that you should use, of course, version control. That's, of course, nothing new for us. But uh, one of the Puppet Labs, kind of like survey or something in 2014, actually found that if you're kind of like DevOps in your company use source control. That's kind of like, uh, it turns out that your company is for all the measurements or whatever better than if just your developers are using source control and not your DevOps. Uh, Where does this come from? It comes from the fact where they say that, you know, basically everything should be in version control, like environments, all the configs, all the documentation, you know, basically like everything should be in your, uh, quote unquote, let's call it Git repository, right? Of course, your secret keys should not, right? Honestly, I didn't find that they mentioned this, but this of course makes sense that you shouldn't put that in because a little Google search on GitHub, right? And you find all sorts of keys that you honestly shouldn't find. Uh, anyways, do you have any, you know, notes on this one? No, but you're absolutely right. Don't put your keys in version control. Yes. And one thing that also was interesting here was that nowadays uh, you have to like make your infrastructure easier to rebuild than to repair. And there is actually one funny quote uh, by a guy from Microsoft where he said that uh, back in the day, they used to, you know, name their servers and treat them like pets. And nowadays they treat them like cattle. You know, if something's wrong, just kill it, spin up a new one. That's it. Go onward. Yeah, I really like the idea from a staging or dev environment perspective instead of having a permanent staging or a permanent dev environment, being able to generate one at request based on the production repo, you know, of the infrastructure as code is way superior to having a dedicated dev and staging environment because invariably they will get out of sync, usually because someone will fix something directly in production and it will never make its way back into the dev and staging. 
environments in a more classic uh, type of environment. Yeah, definitely agreed. Uh, so like next thing is the ever so slightly dreaded word of testing, right? Uh, so you have this few variants of testing like unit testing, acceptance testing, integration testing, right? And then on top of all of this, we have the so-called test-driven development. And I tend to joke and I say that uh, since I'm, you know, most of the time in the JavaScript world, I use the so-called CLTDD, which stands for console log test-driven development, right? Uh, and actually one cool point here was... So say that you, you know, you see the value of test-driven development and you decide to actually implement it. But then the question is, because you can fake it, honestly, as we all know, you can fake it, whether or not you're doing test-driven development or not. But an actually very good point here was, how can you actually, quote-unquote, prove that you're using test-driven development? It's very simple, but honestly, I didn't think about it this before, is after each stage, so red, green, refactor, right, you commit so after basically each step, you commit your code. And um, kind of like one thing that's in pro of TDD is that actually for... So of course, some you know studies calculated this, whatever. Uh, for 15 to 35% more time invested in order to do TDD, you actually get 60 to 90% less defects. And of course, you know, this is interesting, right? Right, because more time is always spent debugging than writing something initially. So if it actually costs you, let's say on the high end, say it costs you 30% more actual time, you're going to save way more actual hours, minutes, and days from doing that than, it's, than it costs you. So it probably saves you half of your developer time. Yeah, definitely. Although it's interesting that it's kind of like, <laughs> this tends to be hard quote-unquote hard to kind of like again quote-unquote sell it to the you know upper management but we're working on it anyways uh well, that's why they invented the phrase it's easier to ask for forgiveness than permission so if you're in a position where you can just make it happen without permission and prove that it works then you will be in a good situation yeah awesome uh Two points here that I also want to mention is that, of course, you know, they say it would be a good thing so that, you know, when a new problem emerges, for example, it caused that the automated build slash test, whatever, failed, the recommendation is that you, you know, drop everything or pull the end on cord, right? And you actually swarm over it until you fix it. And one more thing where in integration tests, you should honestly do them uh, sparingly. But when you find an error in an integration test, which uh, in general tends to run uh, long, you have to write a unit test that will cover this error in, you know, in for the next run. Why the unit test? Because those are the fastest and you get the feedback way faster. Cool. Also, like next one was something that I found myself in general doing, which is definitely not a good thing. And that is that you should not have the so-called uh, long living branches and that you should basically uh, merge into master, honestly, at least once per day. So that's an interesting, well, uh, 
goal, so to speak, right? Because uh, kind of like moving to the goal of all the devs checking to master at least once per day. So that's something that we're definitely going to work towards. And also one thing that they mentioned here is the so-called notion of, you know, blue-green deployment patterns, canary deployments, feature toggles, dark launches. And since I know, because you already told us about this on one dev team meeting, I would really like you to kind of like uh, speak a little bit about the canary deployments. Oh, canary? Okay, sure. So I do have a couple things to say about dark launches, blue-green and a strangler pattern as well, but awesome. um, sure. So a canary deployment uh, in its simplest uh, definition is when you don't roll out a new version into full production and overwrite all the production pods or nodes or servers or whatever it is you're using, but instead you have one or just a small number of instances up that only serve a small percentage of the traffic. So if something goes terribly wrong, you don't have to do a full rollback. You just have to take out, take the canary out of your load balancer and you get to test it on some real world production traffic. It's basically minimal risk, but some things you can't test or you can't test effectively without putting it in, in the face of unpredictable real world traffic. Awesome. So for the dark launches, uh, they actually have a very good example where Facebook, for example, right? What they did, they, deployed actual code to production, but they didn't tell anybody about it. That was back in the day when they were testing the chat functionality because they have so much users, right? They had to somehow, quote unquote, stress test it. And what they did, they added this into production and they also added a code where it kind of like simulated so that the user are actually chatting. That way, they kind of like, they themselves saw how their system behaves, right? So that's an interesting uh, pattern, so to so to speak. Yeah, that was very interesting. They put injected JavaScript into the users' pages so that it would send chat messages. So even though the users didn't know they had chat, they technically did. They just didn't have any UI, and that way they could test it with you know millions of users and make sure that it wouldn't break before they made it visible. Yeah, and also one pattern was uh, discussed here, which I also want you to talk about it because you were the one who originally told us about it. And it's called the Strangler pattern. Uh, Originally is from Martin Fowler, uh, coined in 2004. But here's your stage. Here's your mic, Sean. All right. Well, I love the Strangler pattern because so often as developers, we want to rewrite something. And usually we have a good reason. And the problem with rewriting something from scratch is there is something that I've seen referred to as the big changeover, right? So you've written 2.0 of your app. It's tested. Everybody loves it. At some point, you've got to turn off the old version and turn on the new version. And that's very scary because it's never going to work as exactly as the old one, which is a problem because the old one, sure, it sucks. That's why you rewrote it in the first place. However, it has been tested or what we call battle tested, right? It's out in the real world and your users are using it every day and it you're you're still in business. So obviously something has gone right. So being able to seamlessly change over to 2.0 is probably not going to happen. 
So a way to rewrite things but get rid of the risk of that is to use the strangler pattern, which is very simply taking one feature of your application, writing a new version inside the old application, and you can continue to serve traffic with the old version of it, but you can have the new one running alongside it, and you can have logging or some kind of checking or monitoring to make sure that the new one is behaving, is producing the same output as the old. And if you trust it, you can switch over to serving traffic with the new copy and turn off the old one or even delete that code entirely. If you repeat that process over time, then you will never have a big changeover, but gradually over time, you will have rewritten your application without any of the risks of a big changeover. Yeah, awesome. And we can actually say that we actually have this running in our company, that we're doing this, and it's an awesome thing. Yeah, it's really, it takes all the, the fear out of it, because especially if you're changing something fundamental about your architecture, like say maybe you're changing the way your apps communicate, or you're changing a database backend, or something like that, something where you really can't swap it out all at once, unless everything goes absolutely perfectly. Yeah, awesome. Uh, and I would like to end with something that they call uh, as definition of done. And so far in the book, they define it like this. At the end of each development interval, we must have integrated, tested, working, and potentially shippable code demonstrated in a production-like environment created from trunk. Honestly, a reference here. So trunk basically means master, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Using a one-click process and validated with automated tests. Boom. Yeah, all of that. <laughs> yeah, now the definition of done, that is a definition of done, and that is one they're using in their example. But the definition of done is kind of like a coding standard for your programming language of choice. It doesn't matter what it is, as long as you have one and everyone agrees on it and abides by it. Yeah, definitely. Because here's the thing, for someone the definition of done may be all these steps and checklists and whatnot. For somebody else, you know the Pareto principle, principle basically, you know, 80-20. Uh, it may be less steps, but for them, it gives the best bang for the buck, right? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I saw a really funny image on Twitter last week where uh, it basically said to, you need to have checklist or something otherwise managers get hired and the the moral of the story is that let's say you have a problem something goes wrong in production because of a bad rollout someone higher up in management is going to say well we don't want that to ever happen again let's make it someone's job to check to make sure that type of problem doesn't happen again and if enough of those things happen there's a lot of responsibility there's a lot of extra layers of work that have to be done after the code's written and so they put someone in charge of that. They hire a manager, someone whose job it is to make sure the team doesn't screw up. So it's on us to make sure that we don't screw up and to clean up our own messes so that they don't add layers of management in between that just slow us down and don't actually add business value. We're going to add this image to the show notes. And since I actually have it open, it goes like this. If boring, repetitive things aren't automated, a manager gets hired. <laughs> yeah, that was it. That's beautiful. And then I just want to real quick mention uh, the definition of a couple of things that you said. One of them was blue-green launches, which I thought was really interesting. It's where you have two production environments. One of them is actually being used by the customers, and one 
is basically the staging environment. You can test in it and you can roll out new code there. When you are ready to roll out the new code, you just swap over so that the second environment becomes production. It's serving production users. And the other one, the old production, is now your playground for staging, etc. And if there's a big problem, you can always swap back. But if not, you upgrade that one with the newest version and switch back and forth or back over to the other one next time you launch, which is a pretty interesting way to do things. Uh, dark launch is what Nicola described with the Facebook chat where you actually deploy the code to production, but don't turn it on or don't tell anybody. And related to that is having feature flags. So you can have any number of features in production, including ones that you know don't work at all or are buggy. And they can be turned on and off with a feature flag. So in case you're wondering, hey, if I need to deploy every single day, but it's going to take me two weeks to get this thing working, but I have to merge my stuff into master and get it out every day, that's not possible. It's going to break production. Well, no, it doesn't have to. You can have a flag that says, if this feature is enabled, then do this functionality. And it's off everywhere except for in your development environment. And two of the benefits of that are one, you get all the benefits of avoiding merge conflicts and making sure your code plays nicely in master, plus the ease of being able to still develop it on your own. And on top of that, if you roll it out and there is a problem in production, you actually don't have to roll back all of production because of your mistake. You can just flip a switch and turn that feature back off until you have a chance to fix it. Yep. And actually you can go a step further with uh, blue grid de deployments where you also add a so-called load panel balancer and you just let at the start, you just add, for example, through the green deployment, you add just 10% of the traffic for the first, you know, whatever minutes or however you want to do it. You don't have to go, you know, full out. Or 1% and then 2% and yeah. Anyways, yeah. So this is basically it for the third part of this book. Uh, it did become more, you know, kind of like hands-on, but it still kind of like stays in the general area. To be honest, I don't expect them to go deeper because honestly, like for example, there are books written on, for example, continuous delivery alone. So I get that, that they don't want to go too deep and you can of course read more about it basically so they introduce you to a concept and then if you're into it for example like these you know for example for you the blue green deployments may seem like the best thing ever and you can go in and research more about it and then actually see how that actually is implemented for your use case so basically yeah with that that's it about this part all right another informative podcast thanks nicola thank you sean all right, we'll see everybody next time. Bye, guys. Bye. Thank you for listening to the DevThink podcast. To reach us for comments, show suggestions, and other feedback, contact us at info at devthink. That's D-E-V-T-H dot I-N-K. Our intro music is by Rupa Deadweiler. No animals were harmed in the making of this podcast. 